Well, if we turn back to the chapter we read there together in Malachi, chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, um, a few months ago, I mentioned, I think, possibly at a monthly meeting, but certainly at one of the uh, midweek meetings, um, that... I'd hope to begin a series on Malachi. It's taken me a wee while to get organised for that, but I would like to uh, do that and begin that uh, with you this evening. Uh, I mentioned that uh, I had a request for um, an address at the School of Theology in Ladbert in September coming up this year on Malachi, and I preached very little upon it. So... Uh, in that way, I'm afraid the congregation have been treated rather as guinea pigs uh, for what hopefully will come out, Lord willing, in Ladbert in a few months' time. But we trust, as I looked at it, the more I've looked at it, the more it seems a very suitable book to turn to and uh, as much to give us and hopefully relevance for our day and for our own state as well. This, and tonight, will just be a general introduction to the book as a whole. And then we'll begin again to look through it in a more uh, usual manner of the sermons working our way through each chapter as we go through it. Malachi. First of all, let's think about Malachi's name. Malachi's name. The word is a compound word in Hebrew. It means my messenger or my angel. Malach means a messenger or an angel. Malachi is my messenger or my angel. And the word for uh, that is used here can mean either of the two. And it's the same in not just in Hebrew for the Old Testament, but in Greek also. Messenger and angel in Greek are also interchangeable and in our translation, the same underlying word can come out in one place as messenger, another place as angel. Think of in Revelation, where the Lord is speaking to the seven churches of Asia, to the angel of the church in this place or that. And it is the messenger or the minister of these places, rather than an angelic being. So the name means my messenger. Now, one of the old Jewish rabbis um, takes that to be a kind of a pen name. And in his gloss on the book, his comments, he puts forward the idea that actually it is Ezra, the scribe, who is writing the book. But there's another Jewish tradition in the, one of the Jewish translations... Uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of uh, the Old Testament, that in its uh, translation uh, 
translates verse 1 something like this. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by the hand of his messenger. And you can see how they, they have expanded Malachi there in quite a, a loose way. By the hand of his messenger. So clearly right the way back in uh, Jewish history before even Christ's coming. There was a dispute about exactly who the writer was. Was it Ezra? Was it just a, a general description of himself as a messenger of the Lord? Was it a formal title? But I think there's no real reason to depart from how we would ordinarily take it ourselves. There was a man, a prophet of the Lord, his name was Malachi. And his name, as is so often the case in the people with the people of God in the Old Testament, is a name that is a name he grows into in a peculiar way. It fits. Here is a one who is truly the Lord's messenger. And how helpful it is to have this affirmation as we come, if you like, to the bookend of the Old Testament. This message is my message. This messenger is my messenger, saith the Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi is the instrument, but it's not his message. He's the messenger. And the emphasis is very much on the message, not the messenger. So we don't get to know who his father was. We don't find out what tribe he belongs to or where he stayed. All that information is withheld from us. Usually at the beginning of most of the prophets, we get a little bit, just a little bit of biography. Here, nothing apart from a name. But nothing, nothing in that that should cause us, I don't think, to uh, denigrate in any way Malachi or his message. So Malachi's name. Then we need to know also a bit about Malachi's time scale. When? When is Malachi? And again, as is so often the case, there are different views about when he is. We shouldn't think automatically just because it's placed at the very end of the Bible. Therefore, that's at the end of the Old Testament. Therefore, that's proof that he was the last uh, of the uh, Old Testament prophets. The placement in these things is not. Uh, the, Bible, the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole is not placed chronologically. If that was so, then Job, which we think was a very early book, would be come out far sooner than midway through our Old Testament. Or Ezra, which we know is a very late book. It's there before Psalms, which were written almost exclusively by David. So the Old Testament's layout is not itself an infallible guide to when um, we should put somebody in a, in a timeline. But nonetheless, the fact that Malachi is late and at the end of the Old Testament is significant. It is at least indicative that we should be thinking along these lines. And that would seem to be the wisest course of action. Malachi then we take to be a prophet of the post-exilic period, after the exile. There are the earlier prophets, and like Elijah, Samuel. There are the uh, prophets in that period of the, of the 
um, trials of their, of their leading into exile itself, like Jeremiah, Isaiah before that. Then you have prophets of the exile, Daniel out there in Babylon, Ezekiel. Then we have post-exilic prophets. So we have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, there are indications in the text itself that help us to understand that this must be taken as a later um, book. For example, um, it speaks about the governor. They're offering these sacrifices. And, this, and at one point the Lord says, offer it to your governor and see if he's happy with it. They were offering poor animals. Now the word for governor there would be an unusual word to use if it was during the time of the kings. You Nowhere is Solomon called governor or any of the great kings of Israel. The word is actually a word that is a Persian word for the Persian ruler. There were these governors who were appointed over the different constituencies of the empire. And a man like Nehemiah was one such governor. So that tells us we're in that sort of a period. But then it's also not very early in the exile or post-exilic period because there's a complaint about the animals that were being offered. There was a complaint from the Lord about how they were handling and treating his altar. Verse 7, you have polluted bread upon mine altar. You offer the blind for sacrifice. You offer the lame and the sick. Is it not evil? So it's not early because the temple is complete. The, the structures and facilities of the temple are spoken about. And it's not even in the immediate aftermath of the completion of these things when there was still enthusiasm and, and fidelity in the way of handling it. And so that pushes a little bit later again even than the ones who were prophesying during the time of the rebuilding itself of the temple and probably of, of Jerusalem and these immediate times. So we're getting, in the, in the general late period of the exile and then the post-exilic period, we're also being pushed by the text itself into as near the end of that period as possible. So that takes us to around and about 400 years before Christ. You often have heard before about that kind of 400 year silence between the closing of the Old Testament canon and the voice of one crying in the wilderness where John was raised up as the last in many ways of the Old Testament prophets, though under the New Testament period. So you have that silence. And Malachi then, it's not because at the end of our canon that therefore we assume, or on that basis alone, but there's plenty of evidence in the text to suggest it's post-exilic and it is even toward the latter period of that. The governor that's mentioned, it, it's not impossible, it could actually be referencing 
um, Nehemiah, but we don't have any certainty on that. It could be just one of the other governors appointed in the course of things. Even if there was a governor appointed, Nehemiah had two visits. There was an initial visit, and then he went back again, and then a second one. It could have been even in between these two times. We just aren't sure as to precisely. But in that time scale, we think Malachi was prophesying. That makes it a significant book because it is then going to close out the message of God to his people until Christ comes. And it is not just a postscript. Here is my messenger with my message to Israel. And notice here it is to Israel, not just to Judah as it were, but using the full term for God's people. Very few of the tribes, of the northern tribes, were now associated with the returning exiles, mostly of Judah from Babylon. But they're being addressed as the nation again in this period. So, Malachi's name. A little bit about Malachi's context and time scale, as best we can glean from the context. Now, if we come thirdly to Malachi's content, our structure and theme, what's Malachi all about? What is he talking about? What if we were to be asked ourselves? That book at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, what's it about? We'd probably, many of us, have to sputter and stammer for a wee while trying to think of a few things we can remember from it. Some bits are very memorable. Some bits pass us by. It's often the case, especially with the minor prophets particularly. But how do we break down the passage? Well, there are certain key themes, certainly, in it. God's love for his people. Through the covenant, the covenant is very prominent in Malachi time and again. Different descriptions of the covenant. The, the failure of his people in the way that they had uh, fallen short of, of what they uh, ought to have been as those who had, had been through the, the purifying uh, experience of Babylon, of exile, and being brought back. And yet, so much of the same old lethargy in the worship of God has crept back in. So much of the just going through the motions has rooted itself again. So much of the dismissiveness of the eternal and spiritual realm of what will the Lord do? What does the Lord see? What does it matter? What's the advantage to us in any of this? That kind of mindset has begun to come in. It's, they're doing it because they do it. Because they've always done it. Because they're Jews. Because this is their practice. Because these are their traditions. And you begin to see something of the mindset that would blossom out into the mindset of the Sadducees on the one hand or the Pharisees on the other. Those who adhere to the law out of a strict legalism. Those who are Jews but who discounted most of the supernatural and spiritual. So something of that Spirit has begun and seems to be being reacted against by Malachi. Now, the book begins then 
with a wonderful statement. After that kind of introduction in verse 1, it begins with this wonderful statement, I have loved you, saith the Lord. God's love for them is put at the very beginning of the book. It is laid down as a marker, despite their doubts over it, despite their questions over whether it was real, whether it was continued, whether it mattered anymore, God says, I have loved you. And that basis is important to hold on to right the way through the book. The book is a book of a complaint of love. The complaints that are found here are complaints emanating from God's love to his people. The objections, the corrections, the warnings stem from this, I have loved you, saith the Lord. So the terms of that love are described as a covenant right the way through the book. And that covenant love matters in understanding Malachi. However, Nation is in a poor state. You have a very clear denunciation from the Lord of the practices of the priests and the people. Things were not right. Things were not going well. You can see there the contempt that there is for God at the altar when they, they bring in verse 6. O ye priests that despise my name. He is addressing the priests in particular because that's to do with the altar. Offering polluted bread upon mine altar. The table of the Lord is contemptible, they say. You offer the blind for sacrifice. The lame and the sick for sacrifice. There's this contempt for God at the altar. In other words, the way that they are practicing their religion is slapdash. It is shoddy, it is half-hearted, it is lethargic, it is asthmatic. There is nothing of life in it. There is nothing of inner reality driving it. It is form. You have to alter the, offer animals at this, at this altar. Okay then, here, have an animal. It's a poor one, I won't miss it very much anyway. It won't cost, it won't, oh, I won't miss out, but we'll go through the form, we'll go, it'll, if that'll keep us happy, if that'll allow us to still say we're Israel, we'll go through of that with these things. So it's this kind of failure of worship of God, failure of their religion. And it's not just in the, in the matters of actual the worship itself, it comes out in every other way, in their whole attitude to the law of God. That is what begins chapter 2. This commandment is for you, if you will not hear, if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory to my name, say the Lord of hosts. I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already. And so there's this Covenant that he said he has made with Levi, with the priests there in verse 4. It was of life and peace, he says in verse 5. I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me. 
The law of truth was in his mouth. And yet, he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The priest is meant to do this. And yet the priests have neglected God's law. They have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. And so, yes, at the outward ceremonial aspects in terms of the, the offering and these things, they had missed the spirituality of them entirely. They were not uh, embracing Christ and they're not seeing Christ and they're not recognizing their means of salvation being promised. But then it wasn't even as if at least they were attentive to the law of God. In this too, the priests had failed to, to be a messenger, to deliver clearly to the people the truth of what God requires. Thus say the Lord was not coming from them. And then it was not just the priests that the problem was with. The problem was with the people too. There's a double problem. The morality of the nation is plummeting. The spirituality of the worship is gone. The morality of the nation soon fell. It was following on. And how can one stand without the other? And the morality of the nation was particularly complained at in two different ways. First of all, what was true? Verse 11 of chapter 2. Hath married the daughter of a strange God. There was, these are the same things that were being complained about, of course, by Ezra and Nehemiah. There was this uh, mixed marriages. Where those who were heathens who never knew the Lord, who didn't acknowledge the Lord... Didn't think about Jehovah God at all. There was not any pause. There was not any wisdom in having marriages that were compatible in this way. And so they were bringing in heathen right into the midst of the nation. That had caused them such devastating problems before. But it wasn't even only that. There was also the neglect of Israelite wives. They're putting away that which God has joined together. Yet ye say, wherefore, verse 14 of chapter 2, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Covenant with Levi as priests. The covenant of the Lord and his love to his people. The covenant of marriage. This covenantal theme and the love that undergirds it is right through the book. And so the morality of the nation is falling off a cliff. And the spirituality of the worship has denigrated and degenerated into a mere outward low, feeble practice. God sees their sin. God 
highlights their sin for them very, very forcefully. But then the Lord also has his response to sin. The chapter of chapter 2 ends, where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger. Is how chapter 3 begins. And he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming. And who shall stand when he appeareth. So there is this response. The Lord will send a messenger before him to prepare the way. But he will come and he will come suddenly. And he will come as refiner's fire, as fuller soap. And who shall abide the day of his coming? Israel the nation should not presume on being able to abide. The coming of the Lord. In their state as they are. They are not fit to receive him. And yet he is coming. And yet he will come with a preparer first. But still he will come suddenly. These things you might imagine. Will be contradictory to each other. Usually if we want to arrive. Suddenly and unannounced. We don't send somebody ahead to tell. And yet here we are told. Both of someone who has gone to prepare the way. And yet also a sudden arrival. This is the Lord's response to their sin. He is coming. Now he is coming of course in the great view of the gospel to deal with that sin upon the cross. But he comes also into his temple. Often Christ twice we're told went into the temple to cleanse and to purge it. He preached a gospel of repentance He never failed to highlight the sins of the people. The whole nation was rocked to its core because this preacher told them their sins because they'd been prepared for it by the proclamations of John the Baptist where people would come to him. How should we evidence repentance in our lives? And to the soldiers it was one thing and to the Pharisees something else. The Lord arrived And this is God's response. Here's my people. Here's my people whom I love. Here's my people whom I love. And they're in sin. And they're in abominable condition. And their religious life is a mess. And their home life is a mess. What can I do with them? I will come and deal with it. That's the message. I will come and attend to it. And to them. And so the messenger will come. Now, still, God's coming is then, having been put in this way, a fearful way, a sudden coming. Who shall abide the day of his coming? Yet, The love that was intimate at the start of the book resurfaces in the latter parts at different stages. We can see there 
Verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. Verse 6 of chapter 3, Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. This was, this was the, the safety net. This was the anchor that held them. They were all that he had described them as. But God wasn't changing. And because God wasn't changing, they weren't going to be destroyed. They weren't going to be consumed. And that is the only basis. It was grace never works. Whether it's Old Testament or New, it's grace not works with this our God. And so there is his amazing promise to forgive these Israelites. And yet, he pleads with them to repent. It is conditioned upon their repentance. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord. Problem is, they were saying, wherein shall we return? How can we repent? What have we got to repent of? What's wrong in our lives? Surely we just carry on. But no. There must be a repentance. There must be, not just then, this God who has set his love upon our people, the people who have fallen away, fallen out of love as it were with the Lord, the people who have diluted their worship, who have compromised their lives, And yet the Lord says, yet I'm not changing, therefore you're not consumed. My love I'll not take from thee. That doesn't mean that sin is never to be dealt with, sin is never to be changed. They must be a a repentance and they're going to be brought to it. They will be brought to a repentance. And that's a significant truth in Malachi. This nation who have polluted his altars, who have spoiled their own homes, they must be brought to repentance. There's a very clear distinction in Malachi between those. within the breadth of Israel who truly love the Lord and those who are going through the motions of it. And you see a contrast. We're very used to the words in verse 16 of chapter 3, then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. But before that, there's a contrast between what one subset of Israel is saying and what another are saying. In verse 13, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? The Lord knows all. You were saying it's vain to serve God. That's what they were saying in their hearts, that they were whispering to each other. Some people saying, what's the point of these things? Why are we going through the motions of them? Their hearts were against it, but others speaking often one to another they that feared the Lord and the Lord hearkened to them also and heard it 
and a book of remembrance is written for them. There is this clear distinction then. Here is the people of God. Here is Israel in its broadest sense. And there are those who are true Israelites and there are those who are not. And so the Lord sees and the Lord knows what is happening. There's a clear distinction then between the two. How is it to end? Well, chapter 4, this very brief chapter just sort of tucked in at the end of the book. Think, why didn't they just make that part of chapter 3? Why did they bother with that chapter just for six verses at the end of a short enough chapter before? If chapter 3 had had 50 verses, we could understand it. But they've pulled out these last six verses to our attention here. And for good reason. Because the day of the Lord will declare it. The day cometh and it shall burn as an oven. And all the proud and all the too wicked shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up. It shall leave them neither root nor branch. There's that first category. But unto you that fear my name. Shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. What a beautiful imagery. Malachi brings out here. The day of the Lord will be a savior of life unto life and a savior of death unto death. But he will come. He will come. And then there's a reaffirmation that this messenger will be sent first. Elijah. I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's something of the structure and theme of Malachi. If we come then uh, briefly to Malachi and Christ. Malachi and Christ. Now, I don't want to anticipate too much of what we'll be coming to, but just, just in a few words to notice the things that are said. It's only a little book. But the next books are going to be gospel books. They are going to be full of the Christ who has come. But still, the titles that are, and descriptions that are afforded to him in Malachi are not inferior in any way to what is revealed of Christ in the New Testament. We're told, for example, in chapter 3, verse 1, that this one who comes is me, says the Lord. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Me. In other words, this Messiah we are waiting upon is God, is divine. The divinity of the Messiah. And that was very much why it mattered and that's why the Jews knew it, Matt. And that's why they were pestering John the Baptist, trying to get him to say who he was. Are you Elias? 
Are you that prophet, the one that should come? Not that they wanted to bother with that so much, but they knew then that if he was, if he was claiming to be, then he must also be claiming that the one who's to follow behind him is the Christ. And that mattered, and they understood it very clearly. So the divinity of the Messiah is asserted in Malachi. But then we have this other wonderful phrase and title. The Lord whom ye seek, and their Lord is in the lower case letter, so it is Adonai that's behind it. It is this master whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Notice the possession of the temple, belonging to him. Even the messenger of the covenant. Here's a title for Christ. The messenger of the covenant. Malachi is my messenger. The children of the sons of Levi were messengers as well. But here is the messenger of the covenant. Unlike any others. And then in chapter 4, as we mentioned earlier, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. So we have here, he is divine, but he's going to come to the earth. We have here the messenger of the covenant that he will fulfill the terms of this covenant that the Lord has established with his people and completed and the brokenness of it he will fix. The work of Christ, the character and nature of Christ, divine and human, the work, the message of the covenant, and the effect, the son of righteousness, arising with healing in his wings. So there's plenty of Christ here to keep us going. And just in a word or two then in conclusion, it's a book that is often cited in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. Now it's cited especially in relation to establishing the identity of John the Baptist. So we have it there in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. In Matthew 11, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Then in Mark verse one, uh, chapter 1 and verse 2, as is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before me. Matthew 17, verse 12, But I say unto you, here's the words of Christ, that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Mark 9, and they asked him, why is he the scribes that Elias must come first? And he answered, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things, and be set at naught. You see how Christ there moves from the veracity of the prophecy regarding the forerunner, to the veracity of the prophecy regarding his own sufferings. Luke 1 verse 17. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. To turn the hearts of the fathers to children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the gospels are there establishing 
the credentials of John as the forerunner of Messiah and therefore setting the foundation for Jesus as the Messiah. If John is the forerunner as he is, then Jesus is the Messiah. Very interesting they don't use it directly to prove as where Christ's Messiahship, but they set the foundation for it by referring to John as the messenger sent beforehand. But then there's one other place is a particularly significant citation of it. And that's in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. As it is written, verse 13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now that's in the context there in chapter 9, as the apostle is gearing up to give his expression of his views regarding Israel as a nation. And it comes from Malachi. That idea of Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated is right there in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Malachi. And so here is Malachi declaring to the people who are doubting the Lord's mercy to them. They're in poverty. They're not getting the, the growth from the land that they expected. Whether the Lord still has a purpose and a covenant love for them. And it's Jacob have I loved. And they're going to have to repent. Return to me and I will return unto you. And they'll be brought back. And Paul has no hesitation in bringing that into play in Romans. As he's opening out his discussion as to what about the Jew. Why are they an unbelief? What's going to happen to them? Jacob have I loved, he says. And it still holds. So these are some of the ways, hopefully, we'll try to work our way through this book in the weeks that are ahead. May God bless his word. Let us pray.